Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I welcome Dr. Jessica Nudek-Zitter, who, along with her MD, also holds a master's in public health. After two decades of caring for critically ill patients, Jessica's a strong advocate for a new approach to caring for the dying. She practices the unusual combination of ICU and palliative care medicine at Highland Hospital, the county hospital in Oakland, California, where coincidentally I live. Having herself herself participated in the default and indiscriminate use of technology on dying patients with its resultant suffering. Dr. Zitters come to view this situation as a public health crisis. She's committed to reorienting our care of the dying to a more collaborative process whereby the patient rather than her organ or disease is the primary focus of care. Her first book, Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life, offers an insider's view of intensive care in America and its impact on how we die. Her essays and articles have appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Time Magazine, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and others. Her work is featured in the 2017 Oscar and Emmy-nominated short documentary Extremis, now streaming on Netflix. Excellent. This Verite film follows Jessica, her team, and several patients and their families in the intensive care unit at Highland Hospital. And she's also been featured on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, The Doctors, Dr. Oz, CBS Sunday Morning, and others. Final thing to mention is that she previously uh, co-founded Vital Decisions, a telephone counseling service for patients with life-limiting illnesses. You can find her at jessicazitter.com. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really happy to have you. And so much has happened since you first came on the show with me. I, I looked up the date. It was in 2014. So your life has exploded since wow. then with your book. And, <laughs> but, but I would say it's an actual extension of what you were doing when we first spoke and this idea of how to really look at in, end of life uh, differently and particularly how to how to um, differentiate between intensive care experiences that are really about dying and those that are about um, getting extreme medicine and then living. <laughs> so I appreciate having a having a chance to talk to you again. Oh well, I, I, I love that was very succinctly put. And wow, it's been five years. That's that's amazing. Uh, it, Lots going on, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, a lot has happened. I, I wanted to start just by quoting the first paragraph of, of your book, because I think it sets up the whole book. She, you say, I'm an accidental evangelist, uh, which is a fascinating phrase. Um, I didn't set out to change the culture of medicine, my chosen and beloved profession. I just found I had no choice but to try. Um 
which struck me in a lot of ways. One of which being that you realized pretty pretty early in your career that there was a problem, and I I think that's somewhat unusual, don't you? For doctors, you know, or? it's a good question. I I think you'd have to really do a survey uh, to get people to talk about it, but I think one of the things I've noticed is certainly in my life and in what I seem to, what, what, I, what I sense of my colleagues is that we don't talk about it if we are noticing it. I think it sort of burns sort of a dark hole inside of us. We call it moral distress. Um, and I don't think we have a lot of safe spaces to talk about it. We talk about it with each other in little corners of the, of the ICU or corners of the hall if we had a particularly difficult moment. But there's not sort of a forum for really addressing what I think is happening uh, for many, many of us in this profession. And that's maybe something to point out most particularly about your book is that it's, it's of course, uh, very well written, very uh, complete, um, very mindful, thoughtful book, and also very personal, which really, uh, I, I think humanizing doctors is a, is a good thing for us in the people, in the community of people who receive care. Absolutely. Absolutely. And people don't really, you know, there is such mythology around what a doctor is and what a hospital is and what an ICU is and should provide for us that we're not really dealing in reality. And people are sort of acting out roles, you know, the role of the doctor, the role of the patient, instead of actually coming together in, in, in a relationship and going forward with all of the uncertainty that exists in a way that is as productive as possible for that person, that one person in the bed. Um, and so we're just, again, it's, 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 there's a lot of this is fantasy-based and, 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 and mythology-based and sort of uh, really needs to change. Uh, Role-based, I would yeah. say. You know, just because of what I do in my, in my world, uh, there have been several deaths that I've been a part of where um, I was sort of spearheading conversation with doctors. Yeah. Um, for instance, my father died after falling and, and his the connection between his brain and his body disconnected. Aww. That would be a, for, an, for instance, my mother-in-law died after a catastrophic hemorrhage and then a um, heart attack as a result. Just oh. the kinds of situations that you're talking about in your book. And in both cases, uh, there was surprise and relief when we brought up uh, any thought of what to do next that didn't involve more treatment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Um, even it's tears. It's off script. It's off script. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. I got the sense in both cases that the the doctors would not have brought it up. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully uh, we can report that more and more people over the past several years in, in our profession are starting to drink a new kind of Kool-Aid, that there is another way that, that humanism has to return to healthcare, that our moral distress means something, that there's, you know, 
and and I'm seeing some signs of 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 a change in this mythology. The problem is that I hate to say it, but when the proverbial doo doo hits the fan and someone's going downhill in the hospital and there's you know, that I find that still, because we haven't embedded a new culture yes. in full, there's still this sort of, and I'm not, I'm not even going to say that I don't do this. We all do this. We kind of, we, we stick to the things that are comfortable. And what's comfortable right now is this mythology of do everything, prolong life at all costs, use more machines, bring in more, you know, Hail Mary passes. And that is what we're most comfortable with. People are not equipped yet to sit with emotion to sit with anger, to sit with grief, and to, to hold it. That is not something we know how to do. And you cannot make good decisions with people who are dying and who are in extremis if you can't hold the space for processing of emotion. And I also think not to, not to let us on our side, the patient side, off the hook, to me, uh, if I didn't have the language to say something like, is there a chance for a meaningful recovery? You know, I mean, there are just these, can we get a palliative care consult? You know, yes. like we yes. can say those things if we have the language, but yes. otherwise we're going to, we're going to say things like, what can you do? Right, exactly. That's a really important point. And not only the words and the language, but the intent. You know, I think there's enough data that shows that patients and families tend to like doctors better who give good news to, uh. to make us wonder what people really actually want. Whether or not you have the words and the vocabulary to ask for it, what, let's start with what you really want. People want good news. They want to feel that this black box of the ICU really is a miracle box and that there's some way that, that there's something else that someone can pull out of their hat. And when, when a doctor feels that, and I feel it, I, I mean, it is a terrible thing not to be Dr. Wonderful. It doesn't mm. feel good. But if you really get a sense that your patient or family that you're talking to doesn't want to hear bad news, you're much less likely to give it. You're much, much less likely to give it. And maybe when we all participate in the in the fantasy that death is always bad news, right? Uh, uh, you know, it's sometimes it's timely news. Yeah, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes. But you know, the truth of the matter is, and this is where it gets tough. Death can really be sad a lot of the time. There are too many, I mean, young people who die um, unexpectedly yes. or of cancers or in, in ways that feel unfair that are way too early. There are people who are elderly who die in ways that are painful, even quote unquote, when everything's being done right and there's hospice on board of palliative care. Death isn't easy. And mm. I think one of the things we want to believe is, okay, well, if I have to admit that there's going to be death and there's got, then I know I can make it good. You know, it's a reality of our lives, and it's one that we can do the best that we can for, but there's no escaping the fact that there are such sadnesses about death sometimes, and there are such unfairnesses about death, and those Indeed. are just realities that we have to be able to accept. You know, I, I hear, <laughs> I have a, a segment in the book that's called Too Young to Die. 
Yes. And I, I, that, that really struck me, that whole section. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something we all fall prey to. I mean, I, I even in, in, in the palliative care world, you know, well, no, don't, you know, let's, let's, it's, it's, let's not really go in there and talk about the, the bad news because she's really, she's only 43 and she's got two kids. Well, she's only 43 and she's got two kids, but she's dying. So why, you know, as sad as it is and as painful as it is, and as much as we don't want to upset her and as, as, as unfair as it feels, it's still information that needs to be transferred so that somebody can start to make some plans. And there is a very good chance that they're going to hate you or they're going to kick you out of the room or they're going to, but, but, you know, it's not, it doesn't mean that you, you, that you can just say, well, let's pretend that's not a reality. And I think we, we still fall prey to that. There were several points in the book where you described uh, feeling inside, like you wanted to avoid that conversation but ultimately realizing that you were the best person to actually have the conversation. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of uh, one, one that really stood out was when you were working with the, the um, family of 20 something that included a bunch of people who were gang uh, members and were definitely not wanting to hear that they're, loved one was dying and mm-hmm. just the fear of that that was mm-hmm. such an extreme example and yet when you did in fact you know take a deep breath and have the conversation uh there was relief on their part thanks for playing it straight thanks for yeah. telling us the truth yes and i'll tell you that happens more often than not that people that you think are going to be angry and upset with you end up not being but it still happens that Sometimes people do get angry and upset and sometimes people do kick you out of the room. And, you know, and then what happens, what unfortunately a lot of the time is that there's this sort of, this is my sense and people may disagree, but I feel that you, there's this sort of sense of blame. Oh, you upset the family in room 24, Uh you know, or, oh no, why did you tell them that there wasn't da, 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 you know, there really is some, we can try this. And she said she wants more chemotherapy. So we could try this, even though it's probably not going to work, but we can try it. She sounds like she wants it. So, I mean, the the fact is there is, you know, even if you do take that extra um, breath and go in and give news that you don't want to give and that the person doesn't want to hear, and then there isn't a positive response there shouldn't be a culture of blame that that the colleagues we should be we should have a structure in our hospitals where number 1 we're always pre-rounding so that the doctors who are involved in the case and thinking about prognosis can put their heads together before talking to the family this is a big big problem in hospitals and there is one unified approach or thinking about putting all this information together and getting the best best sense of prognosis and the best sense of the different options that there are and that it's okay and safe for a, the cardiologist comes in and said, well, what, we can try this thing. And then another person says, well, wait a minute, tell me what the benefits and burdens are. To have that real reflective conversation where no one is driving, no one is the boss, no one is in charge, but everyone has a safe voice in that room to sit down and figure out how best to present this situation. Instead of every single person coming in and, you know, hawking the tools of her trade and saying, well, I could do this for you and I could do that for you. That confuses families like crazy. And that just is not a setup for good humanistic connection between doctors and patients. And it, to me, it would lead more likely to sentences like, there's nothing more I can do for you, which is never, ever, ever true. 
absolutely. <laughs> Never true. There's always, true. Uh, always, always so much more we can do. We can, we can relieve your pain. We can be with you until the end. That's we can, it. You know, having heard some of these things along the line, there's yep. never nothing. Never, uh, never. But there is a, a phase out of certain tre- treatments so I think right. there's on- changing the there's changing the, the goal the treatment the goals. Goal. There's there's changing the treatment uh, modalities. Uh, you know, their patient. I, I mean, I have a patient right now who really isn't getting significantly better from chemotherapy, and yet it's like, well, she's still. You know, we might as well try it. But you know, it it, it it's not it's not necessarily true. Just because you're on a course doesn't mean you don't sit down and reflect and say, you know, we think that, you know, every time you take these treat, these, this chemotherapy, the, the, it, it, you know, it, it really does drop your white blood count, makes you much more res- uh, susceptible to terrible infections and makes you sick. And we're not sure it's really working. So um, let's reassess, let's readdress. And that, that's just not happening with the same. Um, you, pr- you probably have, have seen uh Kim Aquaviva and her no. partner Kathy Brandt. Oh they're, yes, they're yes. both uh, um, end of life experts. And Kathy has ovarian cancer, and they've decided not to go for treatment because of just the kinds of things you're talking about. Yeah. So when we come back from this break, we're about to have. Uh, I think it's good to really uh, go into a bit what happens, what literally happens when these conversations don't don't take place. Uh, even though it's painful, I feel it's really useful information for people to, to have. So let's come back to that when we return. Listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Dr. Zitter, you can go to jessicazitter.com. Zitter has two T's. Be back soon. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com again that's jeff spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com voice america is where you are and where you want to be join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available don't forget to view all our live events including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is Cheryl Jones, your host. And uh, today I'm talking with Jessica Zitter, Dr. Jessica Zitter, who's written a book called Extreme Measures. And before the break, Jessica, we were talking about, uh, I, I was saying I really wanted to get into what happens when this over-medicalization con- conveyor belt kind of situation, particularly in the ICU, happens. And it struck me kind of hard that the first time you ever used, uh, ever were a part of a code where you were trying to save someone's life, bring their heart back into working, was, to my mind, pretty traumatic. <laughs> yeah, and, to you say know, the least. <laughs> you, you rush to, you know, save someone. The, the very definition of what you must have looked forward to in your whole medical training, the moment has come. Yes. And then you, you get there and this little paragraph seemed to sum it up for me. It is with astonishment that I lay eyes on the poor soul who is to be the first recipient of my life-saving effort. The patient's skin is an ashy gray yellow with a waxy sheen. The abdomen is visible beneath the soiled sheets deflated from years of malnutrition and disease. A resident is already doing chest compressions, kneeling on the bed to get better leverage. With each compression, there's a sickening click, which I didn't, don't recognize until I hear someone next to me whisper, his whole chest is breaking. This man is dead. Oh, that broke my heart. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have to think the person wasn't entirely in that body. But nonetheless, the trauma for everyone in that room Oh yeah, and oh, yeah. and the idea that that would be the last experience of a lifetime is heartbreaking. It is. It is profoundly heartbreaking. It is profoundly heartbreaking. You know, it. It. Uh, I mean, it is part of the. It is part of the fact that we aren't talking about this. We know that the survival rate from codes is dismal. It's very, very low, and it's somehow become a procedure that is everyone's right to have. You know, Gray's Anatomy has made this this a fantasy procedure that people believe, and we have data on this, really works. And, you know, when you tell people what really happens during a code, their desire for it cuts in half. There was a famous New England Journal article that showed that. And the, the fact is, you know, with advanced care planning, most people, if they really understand this, probably wouldn't want it. But we do it by default because, again, it's this thing that is perceived as a rite of passage. Mm-hmm. And I think we really, you know, maybe we're too far in to say, oh, we're not doing codes on people if we don't think they're medically appropriate. But personally, I think we've just got this whole thing backwards. So you, you uh, quite a phrase, D3, could you talk about that? The, the three treatments that people expect at the end? Oh, yes. <laughs> that- uh- what do I uh, you know what I'm trying to remember what I call them I call them the um oh this is terrible I can't remember it um the 
uh, well, anyway. co- one is the code. Code. For sure. One is code. One is intubation. There's three or four. Ah, uh, okay. It's but it's really three. codes, intubation. You you could sort of assume dialysis a little bit, although there are nephrologists who will say, no, this is, you know, we're not going to do dialysis uh, here. This is not a, a, a recoverable injury. And just because the kidneys are failing doesn't mean we're going to start dialysis in this automatic way. But but most of the time, kidney doctors will will do it. They, you know, oh, let's give it a try. Let's give it a... Um, but, but specifically, the things that happen that an ICU doctor would be doing, which is the chest compressions, the shocking, the putting somebody on a breathing machine, those are things that... that are, are natural and, and automatic things to happen unless someone has opted out in advance, unless they have literally made themselves DNR or a pulsed form is, has been signed, a pulsed form is an out-of-hospital DNR. So it's, it's really uh, something that, that is uh, a, a, a complete argument for doing advanced care planning and really thinking about how, if this type of thing happens to you, how do you want to be managed given the current state of your health and, and your life and your goals? I want to say, though, uh, that it's one thing I also liked about your book is how nuanced it is. Because, for instance, most surgeons will not do surgery without, if there's a DNR, right. as I understand it, uh, they won't let someone die on the table. Right. Uh, and so it leaves people who even want a minor surgery uh, in a dilemma. Right, right. <laughs> I, t- I, t- I talk about that uh, in, in the book with the, the case of a woman that I knew who was a social worker who'd worked in hospice, very savvy about end-of-life issues and very clear about the way she wanted her life to be and very, very clear that she did not want to be on machines, etc. And she ended up having... Um, a situation, a heart situation uh, that 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 probably would have been fine. On um, but she came in, you know, with congestive heart failure. They could f- try to fix it, but it could have gone either way. She was an old older woman, and you know, she's somewhat frail. And the doctor said, "Okay, uh, you can't be." She said, "I want to be DNR. I do not want you to put me on medic on on or, or leave me on on machines." And he said, "Well, I won't do that." He said, "You know, decide. I'm." I'm Basically, I'm walking out the door. You got to decide if you're willing to renege your DNR. Yes. And uh, she finally did because she just was really having. She, she felt abandoned, quite honestly, and she really needed help. And this was the only condition upon which she could go forward. You know, it. Uh, there, I had a a couple years before my mom died. We had a very confusing situation where she ended up in the hospital. It turned out she was hemorrhaging from an ulcer which is, I think, pretty common. It's happened to both my mother-in-law and my mother. Wow. Uh, and she said, oh, yeah, we decided we wouldn't do anything. And I said, Mom, do you mean anything? And she said, oh, no, I don't. But right. it was very murky. Even though I had her power of attorney, it was still murky. They ended up being completely heroic. Uh, yeah. She, she bled out, but she lived. Right, right, right. Uh, which no one could have predicted. Right. And, it's and very confusing it's in confusing. the moment, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's really funny that you say that because I was just on the phone earlier today with somebody who was saying the exact same thing. She's actually an ICU nurse who's writing an article for the Washington Post. And she was interviewing me about the the piece in my book where I talk about not having my own advanced directive completed. And um, Oh, I'd she love would, it if you share that okay. <laughs> after we're done with this part. <laughs> but she, I love you know, that. 
<laughs> she was saying, look, I'm an ICU nurse. And she said, I still find this stuff confusing. And I said, guess what? So do I. Because the reality confusing. is, it is confusing. Because here's the thing about physiology, especially physiology that is acutely deteriorated, is that you don't know the way it's going to go. Okay. Now, yes. if it's if it's acutely deteriorating on top of a chronic illness or a terminal illness, something a, a terrible cancer, et cetera, then you have a little more clarity. In fact, you may have a lot more clarity. And right. particularly if it's an elderly person, I mean, there's and we see this all the time in the ICUs because again, unless you're opting out, that is the route that bodies go. You get older, you get sicker, you get cancer, and then your organs start to fail. So you're going to end up in the ICU. Yes. So you know the the but what's interesting is that. There, there is some, you know, we have a lot of knowledge. We may not admit it to you. <laughs> we may not want to share our suspicions or our sense of the prognosis because if we don't have 100% certainty, we feel that it's not our place to tell you. If there's any chance that we're wrong, no doctor wants to be wrong. So we're probably less likely to say, hey, you know what? We don't think this is going in a good direction. Mm-hmm. Because yes. well, what if we're wrong? Do you know it's it's actually I'll tell you from personal experience, it's embarrassing to be wrong. It feels shameful to be wrong. You feel like you're a naysayer doctor. You feel like you're somebody who wasn't heroic enough, who wasn't trying hard enough, and so you don't do it. And so I think a lot of times we're not giving information that we really have about what we think, it, based on a lot of experience, is likely to happen to somebody, and we just don't say it because we feel it. You know, why, why? Why say it? And so people are really confused, as you, as you say, that like, I, I don't really understand what the doctor's telling us. Or is this going to help or is it not going to help? And that's me, a very informed. Yes. I mean, part of me knew what was going on and part of me was her daughter. I, right. You know, there was no way to be both at once. Right, right. Because <laughs> I kind of fluctuated. <laughs> right. I mean, and, and, you know, I'll tell you, I can't tell you how many times we'll sit and we'll have a meeting with a family about a complicated case. And cases are complicated. Sometimes it's not really exactly clear. But we'll sit down and, and the three attendings on the case will agree without any doubt that the likelihood this person is actually going to wake up and be able to ever talk again, eat again, da, 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 all the things that that family has said that would be important to that person, that everyone agrees that's not going to happen. And yet when you get in the room with the family, the message gets garbled because everyone's like hemming and hawing and well, but, and we tried this and we tried that. And then all this stuff, you see the eyes of the family glaze over and yes. all this information and physiology is being explained, which really doesn't matter because what really matters is what you think the ultimate big picture is going to look like. That's really all that's important at that moment for a family. If they ask for more information about specific physiology, by all means. But most people aren't asking. Most people aren't doctors. And they want to know, what do you think? What's your opinion? What is your opinion? What do you think is happening? Because it, uh, in terms of what I see in grief, which is my main work, uh, the idea that you were left entirely on your own to decide whether it was time to unplug someone or stop treatment um, is a complication of grief. Totally. People are left with a, a terrible amount of, of, of guilt. Yep. Instead of what could be, from my view, um, a sense that they really served that person in the best way they possibly could and that it was hard to do, but yes. it was the right thing to do. And you're 100% right. I mean, the burden on loving family members 
is heartbreaking to watch. When you have this person sitting around trying to do the best thing for mom and there's these, you know, doctors standing around saying, well, you could do this or you could do this. What do you want to do? And you don't provide context and support and frankly, even an actual opinion about what would be the best thing here. Mm -hmm. Yes. You're leaving someone to flounder and you're leaving the most the most vulnerable people to flounder because these are the people who've had a lifelong relationship with that person and who don't want to be in any way associated with quote unquote pulling the plug on mom. And so the, the, the healthcare team, I believe, has such a role to play in helping to support that person who's standing at the bedside. But the other role, as we all know, is advanced care planning and good conversations between a, a really good process in choosing the surrogate, making sure that you've chosen someone who understands that there will be difficult decisions to be made and who understands that there are going to be moments which may actually feel frightening and like they're doing something that would be the wrong thing, but in fact, that are that are that will at a certain point be the right thing. And having that conversation in advance and choosing the right person and giving them permission, the permission that they will need when that day comes to decide that further heroic life prolongation is not what is in concert with this person's goals. That that's a huge part uh, of this too. I you know, absolutely because I just happen to be blessed to be in both my birth family and my family by marriage where these conversations happened yeah. and they were referred through to through the whole process, even though, uh, you know, there, the, the fears came up, yeah. but then it was, no, I know what they wanted. Right. 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 <laughs> and, and everyone got on board because it was clear and not just a pull the plug if I'm not really there, but a little more nuanced conversation. Exactly. Right. Uh, and it's not just, by the way, it's not just the actual decision that you're coming to that's helped by this advanced conversation. It's also the idea of a supportive environment that you have had these conversations with your two kids or your husband and your child or whatever the, the, the decision-making group is going to be to the point that people understand that there is a process here that is going to happen and that they're going to need to be in that process together with the healthcare team. And it is okay to struggle and go back and forth. That is expected. And it's a part of this experience. And, and, and giving permission for that process is very, very important, too. That does seem really, really important. I, I wonder, because I've had the same struggle. I just uh, finished my advanced directive uh, about six months ago. And I've been doing this work for since 1990 or something. <laughs> You sound like me. I know. So that's why I'd love if you would, if you would, uh, do you have the page of that part of your book where you're talking about your own dilemma? Oh boy. I Hold think on. I have it somewhere. Uh, I can look it up on my electronic copy. Um, okay. Uh, well, let me, page let me, 204. Oh, you're good. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, all right. So let's see. Should I, uh, <clears throat> let's see. Um, well, the, the, the main, well, let me just see. Should I read, is it a short, my own procrastination? Uh, Do you want me to read that or that whole thing or no? Well, it's up to you. Either read it or talk about it. I'll, I'll, I'll read the first paragraph, which is, I flew to Florida a while back. Before leaving, I did what I always do before a trip. 
I gathered up all of the stray junk on my desk in the hope that I might actually get something done on the five-hour flight. Stray medical journals, some bills, camp forms for my kids. They all made the cut. And of course, the yellow advanced directive booklet that had been sitting on my desk for four years, shamefully incomplete. At this point, I'm not sure how many trips it has taken with me. I believe it went to Israel last winter break and to Europe the summer before that. It's made numerous trips to the East Coast, and it's become the bane of my existence. So I so understand that because <laughs> it gets more complicated for one thing. Well, you know, I, I, it's funny. I, you've actually, I'm prepared to answer this question because I just had this conversation with this woman uh, earlier today. The advanced directive is not a recipe. And the problem that I was having with the advanced directive was I was looking at at it as a recipe or a set of instructions for my doctors. I was thinking that I could chart out the if this, then that's for my doctors, Uh. my future doctors. That is not what an advanced directive is. An advanced directive is two things, as we know. The first is choosing the right surrogate. And this is a very critical decision. We tend to default to the spouse. We think, oh, it's the spouse. It's the adult children. It's, we, we have this sort of idea of who deserves or who should be given that responsibility of the surrogate decision maker. And I actually think we should come away from that expectation. I think that, that, that it is really a healthy thing to struggle with that decision and really think about all the possible people in your life, which may not be your spouse, who may be most equipped to stand up for what it is that's most important to you. And of course, if you're going to choose somebody who's not your spouse or your child or the, the sort of typical expectation, do the polite thing and do the family harmony thing, which is to really have a conversation with people about that choice and why, and, and that it's not because you don't love them, it's not, but because this is a person who will be most likely to stand up for you. Yes. The second, you know, uh, can, this, can we yeah, come back to that after the yeah. break? Because it's time sure. for another break. Oh, sure. And, um, I, I don't want to rush it. No problem. <laughs> so the second thing, first, <laughs> picking someone who is the right person, and we'll come back to the second thing after the break. Great. Listeners, you can go to weatheringgrief.com, my, my website, or the Good Grief host page. I just want to mention that a link to my novel, An Ocean Between Them, which is about a mother and daughter coming back together after the daughter's uh, diagnosis with cancer. There's a link to that on my page too. And to find Dr. Jessica Nudick-Zitter, you can go to jessicazitter.com back after the break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. 
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Dr. Jessica Zitter, author of Extreme Measures. And before the break, Jessica... Uh, we were talking about this bailiwick of many people, the advanced directive, um, from the point of view of what it's really for. And you started by saying um, the first most important thing to realize about it is is that uh, once you realize that it's not really instructions to the doctor, <laughs> is picking a person who can who can do it, uh, you know, who can handle it. Whether they're family or they're not family, if your family, if you don't think your family can, don't lay it on them because it'll right. be hard. Right. Uh, and then you are going to go on with the second thing that's important. Well, I mean, the second thing that's important is what was holding me up because, as I describe in this in in the section of the book, you know, sections. I don't know. There, the first several sections were like took me about a minute and a half to complete. It was the section on the instruction directive, the medical decisions that was really, really complicated because it's, you know, it's written off as a checkbox, which is this idea of, you know, choose either checkbox A, choice not to prolong life or checkbox B, um, choice to prolong life. And, you know, the, the, the choice to not prolong life, uh, if, if your qual, if it says, if your quality of life is not within, within, within a, uh, in a, in a place that would be acceptable to you is really, personal and subjective. And that was where I was getting hung up because, you know, I, I know that I don't want to live with a whole lot of decrement of quality of life, but how much? And if someone comes in and says, you know, she didn't want to suffer, well, what does suffering mean to her? Right. And, and if the advanced director says, you don't want to be kept on machines for any extended period of time, well, what does an extended period of time mean? And so these are extremely personal. And now that I have really spent so much time talking to different people about their ideas of what quality of life means, I realize this is not something that you can put on a form. This is a, an entry point into a conversation. 
that kind of helps. It's like the sorting hat. It tells you which type of person you are. Are you the kind of person for whom every single nanosecond of life matters, no matter what the quality? I think that's a very small minority of people, quite honestly. Or are you a person who really does have certain requirements for your quality of life that need to be satisfied in order for you to continue to be maintained in a heroic, life-prolonging way with, with, with technologies and machines and treatments that are keeping your body alive, even if you haven't met those criteria that you, that you consider to be essential for quality of life. I would, if I had to guess, the vast majority of people are in that second group. But then you have to do the hard work of figuring out what that means. Mm-hmm. And that's very hard to document. It's very hard to put down on a piece of paper. And there are so many unexpected things. Like, for example, my uncle, my uncle used to joke about, he was a sailor, you know, guy. And he, he used to joke like when he'd get a backache, ah, throw me overboard or give me a cyanide capsule, which is a terrible thing to joke about. But then when he became a quadriplegic, 25, 30 years ago. One would have thought that that would have been an unacceptable thing. He has led a wonderful life. In fact, in some ways, it's been better than it was before his accident. It has brought out things in his life that have been so powerful and so wonderful that it just goes to show you that these feelings about what quality of life mean can change. And you have to be having an active conversation about quality of life throughout your life as your health changes, as your age changes, as your diseases change. Yes. Having watched someone sick with cancer, uh, debilitating and life-limiting cancer for 10 years, I can say that what she thought a good life was and what needed to be happening for it to be changed so radically (laughs) in that time. It was just a slow boat compared with some of the fast boats like suddenly being in an accident like Christopher Reeve or something. Right. But uh, what I realized doing mine, I have to say, was that the most important part was how I supported the relationships. Uh, It so happens that my family is capable of doing that job, but I want them to know that they, there's no way they can do it wrong. Wow. That's beautiful. I'm, I'm okay with how they do it for their own peace of mind and their own comfort, if I'm not able to make the decision, wow. then, then I trust their decision. That, I've never thought about that before, Cheryl. That's a beautiful, beautiful way to put this, actually, because it, it, it's showing that another role of the advanced care planning activities and conversations that should be happening over the course of your life Right, aren't just about the actual decision-making. They're about the relationship. Right. And the other thing that became clear to me was I started thinking about uh, if, I, if I definitively said, if there's no hope of recovery, recovery unplug me. Then I was thinking about my two kids who don't live here where I live, you know. And so I added, give people time to get there. You know, just things like that. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So to me, there's that five wishes ended up working better than a simple yeah. form because it leaves room for that kind of thing. But uh, that's very comforting yep. to yep. actually, that's what got me through the hurdle is, uh-huh. you know, what is really, what matters to me about this? I'm not going to be there. Right, right. 
You know, right. otherwise I'd be making the decisions. You, you know, you might be there in part. I mean, you know, you don't know what the, but you want to account for all of those things. All of I them. might be the, there compromised. My mother-in-law was there yeah. compromised. Yeah. yeah. But all she could really say was, I want to go home. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was up to us to figure out what that looked like. Which is and- in, a, in itself a, t- a type of distress being expressed, you know, of, of some sort of distress. And and know, also it was the truth. Yeah. That was all she cared about at that yeah. moment is going yeah. home. And we yeah. took her home. We but, her home. Uh, yeah. you know, so there's so much in this conversation. I feel that we could, you know, talk for hours and hours <laughs> about both how to avoid the kind of catastrophe in the ICU. But before we get out of here, I want to just ask you something that continued to come to my mind as I read the book, which is how do you how do you bring those two sides of you, the ICU doctor and the palliative care doctor, uh, you know, they are two such different perspectives. And I can imagine it's kind of hard to bring them both into the room at the same time. It's hard. Yeah. It's well, I'll tell you in the beginning, in the beginning years, when I was, when I was just getting interested in palliative care, I'll never forget a a, a very well-respected friend of the family who was a well-respected chief of medicine at a hospital. And I won't say the name of the city said to me, I see you and palliative care. He said, I think that's a conflict of interest. As if somehow, as if somehow practicing as an ICU doctor with any kind of palliative care principles in mind would make me less interested in saving someone's life. And I will tell you that that is just the opposite of what I see. I see the the common thread between practicing ICU, between my feeling of practicing ICU well and my feeling about practicing palliative care well is in both cases, it's about patient-centered care. It's about a relationship. Whether it's with the patient, I mean, the ICU patient may not be available for a relationship. It's a relationship with their decision makers who are acting as surrogates for that person. You cannot do good decision making, whether it's in palliative care or in the intensive care unit, if you are not taking a person into a person into consideration. And what I did for so many years when I was working as an ICU doctor was to just not take a person into consideration. All I was looking at was their organ function and it just didn't feel right. It didn't feel good. It felt, it felt inhumane. And Mm -hmm. that was why learning about this other approach, which, I mean, we call it palliative care, but I want to tell you something. I, I love palliative care. I will be forever indebted to the palliative care movement. But I really think that palliative care is probably one of the first subspecialties to show the way forward towards humane care, but it's really about humane care. This is not about palliative care. It's, it's, a, it's giving us strategies, which include the, the, the thing you see on palliative care teams of the collaboration and interprofessional approaches, a real multi-specially integrated approach to a person, all the different things that come up. There's spiritual needs, which are so critically important, which we right. routinely ignore in the hospital. Um, that kind of work should not just require a, sub, a specialty palliative care consult. That should be happening in all areas of the hospital, in all areas of the outpatient clinic. And in my vision for a, a more perfect future is that our healthcare work 
whether regardless of where is going to be done with that type of approach where people are listening to each other, they're collaborating, they're having safe space to share their voices and their opinions about what is the best approach with that patient. And then that there's a relationship not only between those providers, but then between the healthcare team and the patient and family that is more humane and connected. And we've got a long way to go. And there are so many examples in the in the book of you actually, even though people know they're asking for a palliative care consult, they actually block you from what that's about mm-hmm. in some way. You know, come in and talk about pain, but don't talk about death. Come yep. in and talk, you know, yep. uh, which just seems uh, so difficult uh, to be in that position. But I, I hear what you're saying that in part, having those two disciplines, eventually people maybe get the idea they can coexist well. Yeah. Yeah. Do do you find that happening as time goes on? The book's been out a few years, and I assume you've been practicing from this point of view for a long time now. Uh, Do people kind of get it more as time goes on? I think so. I think people are starting to see the value of this different approach. And I actually think that I'm, I'm seeing a lot of relief on the wards when we, you know, in the palliative care capacity come in to the, you know, and they say, Oh, gosh, could you help us with this? There's, there's a lot of distress among providers for not really having an infrastructure or the tools or skills or the time to provide the kind of care that really feels one with ourselves as care providers. We came into this work because we do care. And it's very, very hard to have a connected relationship with your patient in the way that the current healthcare system is working. And I think we, I, I talk about palliative care as sort of sponging up all the moral distress that exists in the halls of the hospital. Mm. And um, I think that's really one of our functions is really to help kind of to, to help bring the humanity back into the work, to help support the people who are trying to do this work and who are so, I mean, including me, who are so <laughs> stymied, who are so stymied because our, our culture is not geared towards reflection, collaboration, and support. It's really a blame, shame, um, you know, treat culture. And there's such an irony on the patient side in that because the thing that most impacts from my, I've worked with cancer a lot, so that's my frame of reference. The thing that most impacts people's experience of illness that has to do with the medical profession, their actual experience of it, as opposed to whether their body does well, is empathy on the part of medical professionals. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's almost right down the line. Absolutely. (laughs) Physicians that maintain their humanity and make a connection, people have a positive experience even with negative outcomes. That's right. That's absolutely right. And on the other side, uh, excellent doctors who who are cold or inhumane have a very negative impact. And so it's also about, you know, that aspect of it. What what is people's experience of being ill? Right. And, and, and don't forget, what is the, the, the provider, uh, provider that the healthcare, the doctor's experience of being one or the other types, and that's very binary, obviously, but still, one or the other types of these doctors, it's, it's very, I have found it personally very difficult to be a doctor who um, 
is open about who's vulnerable, who's reflective, who questions things. I have found that it doesn't really easily have a place on the wards. You're considered less strong. You're considered less uh, less less valuable. You're you're considered touchy feely. It's not. You're you're more of a setup for the blame that needs to go around because people are so under distress. And it has been very very hard. Um, I'm looking to create. In fact, I was just on the internet trying to get information about Schwartz rounds because I think you know you've heard of Schwartz rounds, but it's it's this mm-hmm. idea of of bringing a, a rounding experience like a M and M, you know, mort- morbidity mortality conference. But it's really not about the physiology and what should you have done here and what you you have done there. It's about the moral experience. It's about the emotional, psychological experience of the healthcare providers, honestly, going through a case. And I really believe that that kind of structure, having those types of activities in a hospital environment are critically important um, for, for, for creating a healthy place. And well, um, and, and just circling back around to, to my part of this field, grief unmet and we're talking about grief, moral dilemmas, yes. grief, you yes. know, yes. patient loss and ca- ca- catastrophic situations is loss. It's grief, right? That unexpressed or unmet shuts people down. Totally. totally. And, and I'm pretty sure shuts them down, not just when they're at work, but Absolutely. in other ways too. Yes. So I'm going to pray for all your healthcare providers that this goes forward. And as I think it is beginning to, for sure. I think so too. And, and that um, we can both be a part of that because patients can dehumanize doctors just as well as other doctors can. <laughs> so That's right. That's I'll, so true. I'll, I'll vote for that not happening. <laughs> oh, it's been a uh, really a delight to have you, Jessica. Oh, Thank you for making the time today. Such a pleasure for me too. I'm sure, we'll be running into each other, being that we're we're local. <laughs> See you <laughs> next <right>. time. <laughs> Thanks, Cheryl. <laughs> Thank you. Next week, I'll have Kim Langley, author of "Send My Roots Rain," to talk about her book and the power of poetry for healing. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. (laughs) 